This comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. All right. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Now David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there are 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Woo! We did it. All right. Let me get over here. Okay. So, as most of you know, our head pastor, Pastor Sam, has been on sabbatical for about four and a half months. And during that time, I've preached just kind of like a random smattering of messages of just kind of whatever God has put on my heart. And with only about a month and a half to go before Sam comes back, I wanted to spend the rest of my sermons focusing explicitly on Jesus. And though our faith can end up being about many different kinds of things, like the community, or reaching out to people, or discipline, or justice, or generosity, it centers on this person of Jesus. So this morning, Good News Church, I just wanted to point out one thing, and that is this. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. Now, since I was a kid, I had an aversion to monarchies and royal personalities. So I did not like these kids who were very bossy. And then when I was like, like do you think you're better than me? Like, why should I listen to you? They'd say something dumb like, oh, it's because I'm older. And I'm like, you didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. I'm not going to play with you. And I was never good at this game, King of the Hill, where somebody would stand on top of the hill and just push people down, and your goal was to stay up there as long as possible. And even in this epic battle between McDonald's and Burger King, I always wound up with a Happy Meal instead of a cardboard crown. And this aversion to monarchy is baked into our culture. Many of us who grew up in the States, we learned a version of American history where King George III was evil, and the founding fathers were on the side of justice and natural law during the Revolutionary War. Kings are bad, and the saying, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, always lurks in the background when I think about the idea of kingship. Now, despite this aversion 
there's still a fascination with monarchy and royalty even in democratic societies. So a couple of examples. In the field of entertainment, there's a Korean drama called The King, The Eternal Monarch, which I watched from beginning to end. Started off strong, did not end up so great. There's also Netflix's The Crown, a docudrama that looks at the royal family in Britain. Excellent, I would recommend that much more than the Korean one. And we can see this in pop culture. You have Elvis, the king. You have Michael Jackson, the king of pop. You see this in athletics, LeBron James, King James. You even have Kim Yuna, the figure skater who is the queen of Korea. But like Burger King and the crown that can be given away for the price of a Whopper, what it means to be a king has been diluted down in our society so that now it's just at the level of the prosaic, given to anybody who wants it. So when Matthew opens his gospel with this subtle message saying, Jesus is a king, at first, it doesn't really do much for me. I kind of like, yeah, okay, but whatever, and I kind of slide right over it. Or if I'm being honest, I'm even a little bit suspicious of it, like, yeah, king, but I just, I don't like it. But when you look closely at this chapter, this long list of names, you'll see that Jesus is not the type of king that comes into our minds. He's not power hungry. He's not ostentatious. He's not corrupt. He's not insecure, and he's not out of touch with his people. He is somebody completely different. And Matthew makes this point in an unexpected way. He makes it with a long list of names. So before we get into it, why don't we pray, and then we'll go on with the message. Dear God, I thank you so much for giving us this time and giving us this season. And when we kind of take a step back, I think a lot of us feel that we are in some deep waters and the water is rising and it's getting closer and closer even to our necks and we feel like maybe it's hard to stand up and catch our breath. But we thank you in the midst of this kind of situation, you are a king who is king over the entire universe. You have great power and you are for your people. So what I pray is, as we look into your word today, you would remind us of who you are. You would remind us that you are with us and that you give us incredible freedom and joy because of it. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in Matthew, Jesus is a king. But what kind of king is he? The first thing we find out about him is he is a king whose power rests on God's promise. In verse 17, Matthew neatly divides up his genealogy into three sections. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and then the exile to the Messiah. The first signpost is Abraham, then David, and last the exile. So why these three? Abraham is famous for being the father of the Jewish people, and his story is an amazing one because it talks about how a hopeless person had been given hope. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to be an immigrant, leave your father's land, and go into a foreign place. And in return, he received this amazing promise. God told him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Abraham receives an amazing promise from God that one day he would father a great people, and one day he would bless the nations. But when you dig into Abraham's life just a little bit, you'll see that he's a very unlikely candidate for such a great promise. At this time, he's 75 years old, and his wife Sarah is 10 years younger than him, 65, and they had been trying, but they could not get pregnant. And for the next 25 years after Abraham first received this promise, 
there was still no sign of a child. And he must have stayed up countless nights waiting and wondering, did I really hear God correct? How could he promise to make me into a great nation when I don't even have a single child of my own? And finally, after 25 years, when Abraham's 100, God miraculously kept his word, and Sarah, at the age of 90, gave birth to their first son, Isaac. And she remarked, at that time, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Already in this list of names, God is showing us the kind of Messiah that we have, not one who looks for great people, but for people who are in a difficult and hopeless situation. And he starts there. And he says, if you feel like you are stuck, if you feel like you cannot make your way out, if you feel like there's no way beyond this, I am here, I am with you, and I make my promises to you. It was a miracle. A hopeless couple had been given hope, and this was phase one of God's promise. And next, Matthew zooms ahead to phase two, and he zooms ahead to David. Now, David is famous for writing the Psalms and being the warrior who defeated a giant Goliath. But more than that, he was also the second king of Israel. And beyond his accomplishments and military prowess and his songwriting abilities, 1 Samuel 13 tells us the most important thing about David, and that is this. He was a man after God's own heart. And this quality expressed itself in this singular desire he wanted to build a temple for God. David looked around at his life, which had been tremendously blessed, and he saw that he lived in a cedar house, a wonderful palace, but God was living in a tent. And so he says to himself, I will build God a mighty and wonderful house. And when God saw this, he was so pleased that he did something very unexpected for him. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, through the prophet Nathan, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offsprings to secede you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish this kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the thing that God did for David. David wanted to build a house for God, and God was so pleased with that that he promised instead I am going to build a house for you. One of your children will sit on the throne forever. So Abraham and David both received these amazing promises from God, and they amounted to this. One day a king will rule over all of the nations and bless all of the nations, and he'll do that forever. But then we get to the third signpost in Matthew's genealogy, which is the exile. By highlighting the exile, Matthew is reminding us that after David, things went downhill, fast. David's son and grandsons and great-grandsons, the kings of Israel and Judah, had disobeyed God and turned their backs on him. Manasseh was the worst of them, who's actually listed in the genealogy. He worshipped idols, he set up altars for them in God's temple, and the most perverted thing he did was he sacrificed his own son to one of these idols in the fire. Now, when you just stop and compare the struggle that Abraham and Sarah had to get pregnant with this guy who just simply throws his son into the fire for a false god, you see how far God's people had fallen from what they should have been. Taking a step back, when you combine Abraham, David, and the exile, a larger story unfolds, and it is this. It's a story of a promise received, a promise extended, and then a promise abandoned. And now 14 generations later, people are left wondering, Will God still honor his promise? Now, as a parent, this is a story arc I encounter 
pretty much every day. Every time we sit down to eat, I'll say to Arlo, now, Arlo, if you have your vegetables, you can have dessert. She goes, how many vegetables? I'm like, take five bites. And then they're like little nibbles of bites. And I'm like, you did what I said, but you weren't really doing what I was intending you to do. So now we switched it and we were like, okay, you got to finish everything on your plate. Take as many bites as you like. But you eventually run into a situation where you're like, well, what happens when she doesn't finish her vegetables? Will she still get her dessert? And you know, like everyone else, we're inconsistent. Some days yes, some days no. And after the exile, God's people probably had a similar question. I know, we know, we failed our end of the bargain. But is God still going to keep up with his promise? And through Christ, we see that God's answer is yes. Even though God's people had abandoned him, he had not abandoned them. And again, there's already so much hope in this long list of names. Over the course of our lives, over the course of this week, all of us have turned away from God in small ways and in big ways. We know he's telling us to do something. Hey, that person that is annoying you so much, reach out to them. That family member who is bugging you so much that you know you have friction with, reconcile with them. Be more generous. And when we realize that we have not followed our end of the bargain in terms of obeying God, we instinctively feel, all right, I know I've turned away from God. I'm wondering, has he turned away from me? For a time, we might feel alienated, we might feel like God is distant because of what we're doing, but Jesus' arrival through this particular genealogy reminds us that God keeps his promise no matter what. Even when we fail, he does not. The first thing we learn about Jesus' kingship is that it rests on God's unfailing promise. But when we look a little deeper at this list of names, we learn something else. We discover that Jesus is a king who sees and rewards small acts of faith. Now look carefully over these list of names, and Matthew will show you that he's doing something strange. In the ancient world, it is not common to list women in genealogies. But in verses 1 to 15, you'll see that four women are mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife. Now what do these four women have in common? It is this. At some point in their life, they put their faith in God and even risk their lives in order to follow him. Tamar's story is the most complicated and it's captured in Genesis 38. She was married to Judah's son. And in ancient Israelite custom, if your brother died, your younger brother was supposed to marry the widow and have a child with him so that your name could continue to live on. So at some point, Tamar's first husband died and her brother, or his brother, Judah's second son married her. But he did not want to father a child with Tamar because he knew that even if the child was born, it wouldn't be his, it'd be his brother's child. So he refused to do it. And eventually he also died. And now Judah gets superstitious. Look, this woman married two of my sons. They both died. I have a third son. I'm not going to let him marry her. And so he kept saying, all right, when he's old enough, I'll let him marry you. But he was getting into his 20s and his 30s, into his 40s, and Tamar's like, what's going on? This guy's old enough. And Judah would not give his son over to him. So Tamar knew that Judah was in the wrong. And what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands. And this is pretty scandalous, so I'm glad there's no kids around. But she basically hid her identity, dressed up as a prostitute, and tricked Judah, the father, into sleeping with her. And this was a cause for treason. 
Because Judah was like, this woman is now pregnant, and he didn't realize that he was the father, you know, like Maury Povich. And then eventually Tamar's like, oh, who's the dad? It's the guy who owns this. And Judah's like, oh, that's my stuff. <laughs> so you are the father, Judah. And when he realized this, he wasn't mad, but he said something very interesting. He said, Tamar is more righteous than I. Even though this is a scandalous story to us, Tamar was in a position of weakness. She had no other options open to her. She believed in God, and this is what she did. And Judah recognized, I was in the wrong, and she was in the right. Rahab did something similar. She's a prostitute living in Jericho. And when two Israelite spies came into her apartment on a scouting trip to look at what Jericho was like, she decided to hide them because she had heard about the type of God that they worship. And she wanted to put her trust in him. Obviously, this is a risky move. If you're caught with two foreign spies in your apartment, you'll be arrested and killed for treason. But she did it anyway, and the book of Hebrew tells us it's because of her faith in God. And just going real quick, Ruth and Bathsheba are the same. Ruth risked her life by following Naomi in a time of famine and drought instead of going back to her homeland. And Bathsheba risked her life by advocating that her son Solomon become the king, even though there was another king on the throne. The men in Jesus' genealogy are great men. They're patriarchs. They're kings. And compared to them, the women are scandalous. What are we talking about? We're talking about two prostitutes, a foreigner, and an adulteress. In general, if you have this kind of stuff in your family history, you try to hide it. But Matthew did not. And the reason is, he wanted to make a point. These four women, scandalous as they might be, are remarkable because they put their faith in God in small ways, and God saw that faith, and he rewarded it. And this is the point. Jesus is not a king who is obsessed with power and grand gestures. He sees these very small acts of faith, and he celebrates them. Let me just read one story. This is from Mark 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings are put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The story here and the four women in Jesus' genealogy are an encouragement to people who are being faithful but feel discouraged. You're pouring out your heart into something and nothing seems to change, nothing seems to happen. You spend all this time getting your house right. You spend all this time buying the groceries. You wake up early. You make pancakes. And when the kids come out, they say, I don't want that. And you're like, what? <laughs> you're here. You get to church. You set up early. You do all this work behind the scenes. And it seems like nothing is changing. Everyone is the same. And it's easy to get discouraged. But Jesus is a king who sees these two small copper coins. He sees these small acts of faith, these little things that you do, and he says, those are my people, and he rewards them. At the end, it's the small faithfulness that Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the last thing that we see is that Jesus is a king who suffers with his people. Now, when you look over his genealogy, you do see tremendous suffering. David suffered a lot, especially as his family fell apart because of his sin. 
All the generations who lived after the exile experienced the shame and trauma of having lost their homeland. But suffering is not what we usually think about when we think about kings and queens. Nowadays, we usually associate monarchy with a pampered life, people who are adorned in fine clothing, who stay in comfortable castles, who live in a life of luxury. When I was studying for my PhD in uh, European history, Jen and I lived in uh, Germany for about nine months. And while we were there, we visited all these different little towns. And one of the places that we saw was in Munich, and it was called the Residenz. And this was the home of the Bavarian kings and queens. This was one of the most gaudy and bedazzled places I had ever seen. They used gold paint to go up the walls. Everything was in marble. They had busts of Roman emperors in their hallway. It had over 10 courtyards and 130 rooms. And it had over a thousand years of history contained in them. And who was this palace supposed to celebrate? The Wittelsbox. Anybody know the Wittelsbox? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> Nobody knows who these guys are, but their palace is crazy and amazing. And not only that, they had this treasury with over 1,200 prized possessions that included crowns. Seeing all these things in one place reinforces the message that royalty equals riches and power. And what signifies this the most is the crown. Going back to even ancient times, the crown signified a king's power, his wealth, his connection to God. Even David, we're told, had a crown that weighed 65 pounds, was made of pure gold, and was set with precious stones. Now in Matthew, Jesus is a king. In fact, he's the king of kings. And we should expect to him to have this tremendous crown showing off his power and his wealth, but instead, the only crown he ever wears is made of thorns. In Matthew 27, right before his crucifixion, it reads, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole companies of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And they spit on him and struck him over and over again. Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that we're expecting. He's not one who lives above the fray in this castle shielded from the things that people go through. He is somebody who experiences suffering, and not only does he experience suffering so that he can relate to us, but he even suffers on our behalf. Right now, our world, our church, uh, is going through a time of suffering, and many people are enduring physical pain or even emotional and spiritual pain because of everything that we're going through. Every single role in our life seems to keep extracting a little bit more from us as every week goes by. And we might think, what is our hope in the midst of this as the water rises to our neck? We worship a king who suffers, who understands all that we've gone through. So the reminder is this. At the center of our faith is a king, but his royal power is not based on blood. It's based on God's promise. And this promise started in this hopeless place where you would never expect to find anything good. But through Abraham and Sarah, something came out. It reminds us that God is attracted to small acts of faith. He's not looking for grand gestures. He's looking for you to be faithful. Do the things that God is calling you to do, and he will see it. And he's also speaking to people who are suffering, who are going through pain. He is with you. He understands you. He's experienced it itself. The last thing I wanted to say is we worship a king who is with us in every way that matters. He's not the picture that we initially comes into our mind of a cardboard crown or riches. 
He's somebody that we need to fix our eyes on. So my just general advice to you is this. Take some time over the next few weeks and read through one of the Gospels. Fix your eyes on him. Learn about who he is. Learn who the center of our faith is and let that fill you up. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for giving us this time to meditate and fix our eyes on who you are. And God, it's so hard to get out of the situations that we're stuck in. But we recognize that even through your origin, you teach us so much about the type of king that you are. You are a king who reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises. You are a king who sees all the small things we do and are encouraged by them. And you are a king who suffers with your people. I pray that as we continue to worship you, as we continue to reflect on you, you would remind us that we are not alone in the things that we're going through, but instead you are with us in the most important and powerful ways. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.